We have, as he said, been working through a sermon series in the life of David, and we come um, to 24, just to get you caught up on the story, David is running from his life from King Saul, uh, who is enraged with jealousy at this upstart, whom he's afraid is is going to usurp the throne from uh, his control. David has already been anointed as the as the next to be king. He's already been chosen to be the future king, but that event, his coronation hasn't happened yet. And now he and his men are fugitives in the wilderness. You saw the picture in the front of your bulletin, 35 or so miles southeast of Jerusalem in a very barren region on the western shores of the Dead Sea, where these, uh, I think, limestone caves are located. And we read, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David's men were back in the cave, far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, Yahweh, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, For he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground and said to Saul, Why do you listen to the men who say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have been with your own eyes, you you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift up my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And then he continues, kind of a level of a Middle Eastern... Um, Middle Eastern expression. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A, a flea? Is his way of saying, I mean, why would you... I, I'm inconsequential. Why would you be worried about somebody like me? No, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David had finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said, 
You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord deliver me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's house. So David gave his oath to Saul. And, and we should put parenthetically here, and David was a realist. <laughs> when Saul returned home, David and his men went up to the stronghold you know, for safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Which is it? Is this the opportunity of a lifetime or is this the forbidden fruit of temptation? Uh, do, I, do I seize the day? Carpe diem. Seize the opportunity. Or do I wait patiently for a promised future? I mean, surely these are some of the questions that we've all asked and they had to have been ruminating through David's mind as well. I mean, is this, is this the Lord's gift horse or, or is this a great stumbling block? Like, how do, you, how do you assess the situation? And uh, notice the quote on the front of your bulletin. Remember who we're dealing with here. I mean, King Saul is a tyrant. He is, I mean, he was a man who was willing to slaughter in cold blood, an entire village of priests. Could there be anything more like, daringly anti-Christ-like sacrilegious to, than to kill an entire village of priests on the mere suspicion that that village of priests were harboring David and cooperating with David? I mean, if there was any king who deserved to be overthrown, it was certainly this man. And then he... He just so happens to walk into the cave to use the toilet, the very cave where David and his men are hiding in the back. I mean, easiest assassination ever. <laughs> I mean, you can't ask for a, a more golden opportunity. You know, his head is served to David on a platter. And notice the words of David's men in verse 4. <laughs> this is the day. This is... <laughs> This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, incidentally, nowhere in the Bible is that promise ever recorded. There's nowhere it's ever, nowhere written that God ever said that to, to David. I mean, maybe he did, but it's certainly not recorded. I mean, more than likely, the men are doing the very thing that you and I do all the time. We're taking an event and trying to understand what is God's will for my life, you know, based on this event. And they say to him, David, David, you don't need a degree in theology to realize that this, this is it. I mean, so killing Saul would solve so many of their problems. I mean, David and his men, they're all fugitives. They're all removed from their families. They're all on the run. They all have the threat of death. He's a wicked king. Um, and David, he obviously senses this too. So he creeps through the cave uh, right up behind Saul. We imagine Saul is disrobed. He's unarmed. He's unprotected. I mean, the height of vulnerability. And, and maybe as David is raising the knife to 
to put it in his back, he's conscience stricken. And so what he does is he cuts off a corner of uh, Saul's robe, which was a very important symbolic act because all throughout the Old Testament, one's robes are indicative of one's office. The, the robes of the king are, you know, that is an in, in indicator of kingship and the kingdom. So it's a symbolic attack upon Saul. And you notice immediately, even David's conscience won't even allow for that. Even that symbolic action had gone too far. So as we continue in the story, verse 7, he heads back to his men and he says, I will not do this no matter how wicked he is. He is the Lord's anointed. He has been chosen as king. And literally the Hebrew says, in our translation, it says that he rebuked them strongly. But in the Hebrew, it says that he tore, he tore them apart with his words. It's like no one has the right to, to touch the Lord's anointed. There you have the story. It's a great story. And there are several others in 1 Samuel that are like this. Other episodes where David ends up sparing um, Saul's life. And I think when you go back to that first context, why would this be written and similar stories written? You you understand it had a very important um, significance to the people in Israel that day. It showed that David was a righteous king. He came later to the kingship. not through underhanded tactics. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't have any blood guilt on his hands. All of those things, you can see how it would apply, right? In the original context. But what does it mean for us today? And I have to admit to you, working on the sermon this week, I had a very difficult time making the connection of how do, how do you preach this? <laughs> what, what is the message for us today? And the best that I, that I came up with, I hope it's good enough, <laughs> It seems to me that David obeyed the words of the Apostle Paul, written in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, you know, long before, obviously, the Apostle Paul ever wrote those words. Um, They're echoes of Romans 12. And so that's where I want to place the remainder of the attention of the sermon on. Can I read those words to you? Romans 12, it's in this, is the second half of the letter, a series of short-fire exhortations to Christians on, here's the ethical conduct that ought to govern your life. And beginning in verse 17, this is what he says. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace, at shalom, live in peace with everyone. Verse 19, this is the key. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32, for it is mine, um, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But on the contrary, then he quotes from Proverbs 25, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then the final punchline, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This, that is, this is one of the hardest ethical uh, principles in all of the Bible for us to obey, is it not? Because 
I mean, the desire for revenge runs so deeply through every one of our hearts. And if there's any dimension of the Christian life that we are called to transcend and do life differently than the rest of the world, it is, it is right here. It is right here with how we, how we treat people who have maliciously injured and, and, and treated us. So here are two words that I'd like you to consider in relation to Romans 12 and, and this story. Number one, vindication. And number two, vengeance. Number one, vindication. Uh, vindication is a, a subset of justice. When you are vindicated, it means that you are acquitted of false accusations. About 10 years ago, I maybe I've already told you this story. Those of you who um, know me well know it was one of the hardest episodes I've ever been through in my life. Um, my uh, college roommate and best friend, the guy that... I ended up kind of recruiting to follow me to seminary, and then he went into the, to the pastorate and the ministry after I did. Uh, he was accused by his wife of uh, abusing their children. Out of the blue, accused of, of sexually assaulting his children, which is basically the worst thing anybody could possibly accuse you of in our society. Um, I mean, I, I get the phone call. If you've ever been on the end of the other line on a phone call like that, you know, it's just pure hell. And I jumped on an airplane 24 hours later. I mean, went down, not, not understanding at all what, what has taken, pla- had taken place. Um, and over the course of time, um, I became very much convinced of his, of his innocence. I mean, with an accusation like that, you're pretty much presumed guilty. <laughs> you're presumed guilty of something. Like, even if you didn't do that, you must have done something to, to justify that. The, the more that I, I looked into it, I, I was convinced of his innocence. And as the time came for the, the, his day in court, I can tell you, and, and you can relate to this, if you've ever been falsely accused, but especially if you've ever been falsely accused of something heinous, Like how much you yearn for vindication. How much you are, just every fiber of your being is yearning for the truth to come out and for you to be exonerated of those false accusations. I mean, that's what we were all feeling as it headed into court. Uh, What happened? He was vindicated by the, the, the first court. He was then vindicated by the Court of Appeal the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court of the state of Mississippi, and he was granted full custody of the children. He was vindicated by the Supreme Court. Um, and that, that was one of the most satisfying moments of my entire life. And it was also one of just the saddest, too. Because, as you know, you can never take any of that back. You, you can never go back. It's never the same again. He lost his job, he lost his reputation, he lost his friends, he lost, he, he, he lost nearly everything except his kids. And although he was vindicated, you, you, can never, you can never go back. And I have to think David is in a similar kind of um, boat here because it, it is in his final speech to King Saul, he asked that God would vindicate him and declare him to be innocent. God, in fact, does vindicate him 
And nevertheless, the rest of David's life still is a, is a disaster as uh, Saul continues to pursue him. And um, never, you, can, you can never go back. I mean, the, the hope for us as Christians, what's the great vindication of the Bible? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, in that one lone act, God overturned the judgments that had been leveled against his son on the cross. That he is you know, a false teacher, that he is a false savior, that he is a false messiah, that he is wicked, that he is not the son of God because he has not saved himself. All of those judgments are overturned and vindicated in the resurrection. And it is in the resurrection um, that only then will all of our false judgments ultimately be overturned. So that's the first word here. The second word, vengeance, I think we know what that means. Vengeance is when the person who hurt us is punished for their wrongdoing. Uh, unfortunately for David, he didn't have a higher court to appeal to. Uh, you can't go any higher than the king. There was no police department that he could ask to punish the king for what he had done. But you know, God has created the government and the police and the human courts and institutions not only to vindicate the innocent, but to punish the guilty. What's noteworthy in the story is, is simply that David refused to take judgment or vengeance in his own hands. Just like Paul had said in Romans 12, like we must never be our own avenger. Never. We are never to be our own avenger. Quite to the contrary, it says that when we are cursed, we do what? We bless. When our enemy is in need of clothes, we do what? We clothe them. When our, we do positive good as opposed to mete out um, vengeance. Look how David is rewarded for such behavior. I mean, what any normal guy would have on his hands at the end of the story is blood. <laughs> what does David have in his hands at the end of the story? He has a piece of the kingdom. <laughs> he has Saul's robe. Uh, and if we had been reading all the way up through 1 Samuel, we would realize that up to this point in the story, every time Saul, I think it's like every time Saul refers to David, he always calls him the son of Jesse. <laughs> but at this moment, did you notice it? Where is it? Verse no, 16. He's, when David finished speaking, Saul says, is that your voice? David, my son. And he wept aloud and he said, you are more righteous than I. Saul calls him his son. Which was, again, symbolically significant. If David was Saul's son, he was a member of the royal household and legitimately in line for the, th for the throne, a fact that Saul acknowledges in this point. And so in this way, I think, uh, David fulfills Romans 5, uh, chapter 12. He has overcome evil with good, and he has you know, a piece of the robe in order to demonstrate that fact. How many of us were taught about the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955? That should have been something that was taught in every one of our U.S. history classes. The African-American community in Montgomery was protesting 
the racial segregation uh, of the mass transit system. And they said, we're not going to ride the buses. You're going to stick us in the back of the bus. We ain't going to ride it anymore. Um, which was a brave thing to do, obviously. And it took, the, bo- the boycott lasted, I believe, a little over a year. It was a tremendous hardship upon the African-American community. Because how do you get to work on time if you, <laughs> you don't have a bus to ride, Right. And then the police chief of the city of Montgomery came out and he threatened all the cab drivers in the city. If you basically give a discount to any African-American in order to get them um, to work, then we'll throw you into jail. So you can't ride the bus. They couldn't ride the bus. They couldn't afford a cab. This goes on for a year. And at that time, uh, actually sometime later, Martin Luther King Jr. was writing about it and he said... uh, Our resolve almost broke. It became, quote, more and more difficult to catch a ride and complaints among our community began to rise. And from early morning to late at night, my telephone was constantly ringing. My doorbell was always being uh, rung and the, the door was always being knocked on. And I began to have doubts about the ability of the Negro community to, to continue the struggle. One night, Dr. King was preaching the evening service at his church when an usher runs down the, the aisle and he whispers into Do- in Dr. King's ear, your house has been bombed. And his wife and his infant daughter were back in the house. So Dr. King rushes home and thankfully finds out that his wife and his infant daughter were, were not injured, but the windows have been blown out of the house the, the, there's a crater on the front porch, and there's a huge crowd of African Americans that are now gathering in front of his house uh, as the news was spreading across the city. And you can imagine that things were, it was a powder keg that was ready to blow. Um, there were bottles being thrown. There were police batons b- uh, being waved. The police were telling the crowd to disperse, and the crowd wasn't at all likely to disperse. It's growing The police chief, who only months earlier had publicly declared his support for the White Wizard Council, goes up to Martin Luther King, pulls him aside, and he says, you got to do something. You have anything, because we are on the verge of a full-scale riot. Now, put yourself in his shoes. Your home has just been bombed. Your, Your wife and your daughter have been attacked what does the instinct of your heart say at that moment? You've been subject to just years of abuse. Well, he gets up on this front porch, stands in the crater, and he says this. We must love our white brothers no matter what they do to us. We must make them know that we love them. For Jesus still cries out in words that echo across the centuries, love your enemies and bless those that curse you. Pray for them who despitefully use you. Don't do anything panicky. Don't get your weapons. And he concluded it by saying, for he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And I'm I'm no chief historian, but what I've read is that many historians point to that as the turning point 
in the civil rights movement. That, that speech, a speech you probably have never even heard about before, but, but that was it. And uh, uh, I, I have to believe that Dr. King was taking a page out of Paul's playbook, <laughs> out of David's playbook. This is the page in God's playbook, everyone. Um, do not take revenge. And if you're your enemy is in need, then you feed them and clothe them. And then I, I love the, the proverb that Paul quotes there, Proverbs 25. For in doing this, you will heap burning coals on your enemy's head. Now, when, we, when you first hear that, doesn't it, that sounds maybe a little bit vindictive, doesn't it? Like we're, we want to burn him? <laughs> we, want to burn, we want him to burn in hell? Um, but it's almost certainly not what was meant. See, what do you think those coals of fire are? They are, the, they, they are the, the burning shame of remorse for having treated someone so badly and in turn be treated with love. The burning coals of shame upon one's head that, that causes a person to do a double take and reconsider all that they have uh, yet been doing. And again, that is what happens in our story, isn't it? You know, Saul has the burning coals of shame on his head, and he, he's, he's, he's absolutely ashamed of his own behavior. If only it was, like, real and lasting shame, the shame that leads to repentance and, and is not. David appeals to justice from God. He, he stays his hand from vengeance because he really does believe that Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And he's looking down, somehow down the corridor of time, waiting for justice to finally arrive in, in this world. It's just, it's that the, it's the winds of justice, they blow so slowly, right? And, and even when God does give justice of some sort in this life, what's so madding, maddening and frustrating is that it's a, it's a partial justice, um, as I said earlier, you can never go back and, and, and redo things again. You know, one of the most powerful examples to me of the, the frustrating nature of God's justice, God's rectifying problems in the world, is taken from the life of Jesus. I'll, I'll cite it from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 the story of the uh, Gerardine um, demoniac. So J Jesus and his disciples have headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the eastern side. They meet two demon-possessed men who are somehow walking out of the cemetery. Matthew says that these two men had terrorized the region for so long that nobody would even walk in that area any longer because it was, they didn't consider it to be safe. These were evil-possessed men who hurt other people. And do you remember how they respond when they see Jesus? They cry out in a loud voice, We know who you are. We know that you are the Son of God. And then they say something, most, the most peculiar statement. He says, basically, And what are you doing here right now? Because it's not your time to judge us. That's what the demons said. It's not your time, the appointed time, for you to judge us. As the story goes on, there's a herd of pigs on the hillside over there. And they, the, the demons request entrance into the pigs. You know, get, let us go live in the pigs. 
And so what we have in this is a story, a need that needs to be rectified in this world. And Jesus does rectify it in a sense, but only partially. Because today is not the day that everything gets put to right. Uh, He throws them, he sends them off into the demons. I mean, sorry, the demons into the pigs. They run down into the Sea of Galilee, remember, and they perish. We're not told what happens to the demons after that moment, are we? But I can guarantee you those demons are not right now at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee in the carcasses of, of dead swine. Like those demons, they ended up going out into the rest of the world to terrorize and harm other people. And, and they, they are still doing so to this very day. Um, and that's the frustrating nature of, of life in this world. When it's not yet the appointed time to make everything right. So you see with Saul, he has all of, he's sorrowful, he's crying crocodile tears. And in the very next chapter, he's off chasing David again. You know, God intervenes, it's rectified for 24 hours, so to speak. Um, You know, my college roommate, that pain was so traumatic. It took, I think it took five years to make it all the way through the court system. uh, And nothing's ever going to be the same again. And so, um, I don't know exactly what I'm, my point is other than, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, we, we say, I believe that you are the judge of the living and the dead. I believe you are coming to judge the living and the dead. The hard part is just waiting for that to, to finally happen when things are made right, especially when we're dealing with people who have maliciously injured, injured us. The last story I'm going to tell is just in, in relation to how... How do, if, you're, if you have been uh, horribly injured, and that probably covers you know, a lot of us in this room, you've been horribly injured from somebody else, how do you keep from allowing either the fear or the anger or all of that to just consume you and make, make you a wreck? And there's one other story I want to uh, share with you. It's, it's based on a book that was written by Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. What a name, V-O-L-F, a fantastic theologian. I read it several years ago. It's entitled The End of Memory. So Miroslav Volf, he grew up in what was Yugoslavia. Some of you can remember that country. Others of you, you've never even heard of it before. Yugoslavia, back in the 80s, was communist. And then it was broken up into you know, all these different republics, Croatia, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, etc. But, but back in the 80s, it's communist. And Miroslav Volf, he was, he was out of place because his dad was a Pentecostal minister and his wife was American. You can imagine this, the level of suspicion that the communistic Yugoslavian authorities had towards this man because he's, he's got these religious ties and he has these Western ties. Well, beginning in the year 1984, over the course of the year, he... Every day, he was interrogated and tortured. And the military policeman who subjected him to the abuse, throughout the book, he refers to him as Captain G. And the whole book, The End of Memory, is it's really an exploration of how can I overcome the traumatic memories of Captain G, 
who's always there in my nightmares and, and who's there in my waking moments? How do I overcome someone who has treated me so maliciously? And what do you think his answer was? It was just, it, it was meditating on the cross. And the whole book is this in-depth exploration of, of the cross. He writes, Through my memory of the passion of Christ on the cross, I discovered that God could purify my memories of wrong suffered by that memory. Uh, and he goes on, Because my identity stems neither from the wrongdoing done to me, but only through the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The only way that I can forget these haunting nightmares of my past is by remembering the nightmare of the cross. And finally, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of sinners, but no one can be in the presence of the cross for long without realizing that this is wrong. And when, when, when one knows that there is ultimate justice and that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is freed to rediscover the torturer's humanity and imitate God's love for that person. And there's so much more, you know, I'm not doing it justice, so much richness of, of meditating upon the cross, but... That's God's word for us uh, from David in the cave. We are to forgive our enemies of the past. We are to leave God's wrath and justice to the future. We are to treat our enemies well and therefore and thereby overcome evil with good. Amen.